For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Good evening, Josh. Hello, Dan. And tonight we're going to talk kombucha. On the program, we'll have Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha, very popular product here in Montreal. And uh, I've enjoyed it myself, and uh, I have so many questions about this drink. Uh, What is in it? Why does it taste so interesting? There are secret recipes, you know, Mm -hmm. that you can't divulge everything, but there's some aspects to it, Dan, that uh, you'll find very interesting. So... uh, uh, we'll uh, take a look at Rise Kombucha in a little bit, but first, uh, we'll also talk about uh, HR on the program again tonight. We'll talk about uh, how to coach your managers uh, to be more effective within your organization. That's later in the program. Uh, but first, some of the entrepreneurial news of the week. A uh, big uh, uh, sale in Montreal, a family company um, selling, uh, sorry, a, a Montreal-based company is selling turf. Uh, but having some issues in the states. Well, Field Turf, uh, Field Turf is uh, kind of a well-known uh, company in Montreal. They've been they've been selling turfs, you know, or the art- these artificial turfs for for football fields and soccer fields and all that. But really, what what came out of uh, a story very recently, uh, I believe it was in the Gazette or Financial Post, was that there were some defects in this Field Turf because they, you know, it's basically the it's a product that is meant to last for a long time, say a decade or plus, with a you know little bit of maintenance, not too much. But there were some problems with it, and it's, it's not so much to highlight the problem with this company Field Turf. It's more to highlight the issue that it's all about quality, and you know we're going to talk about that with Julian soon with Rise Kombucha. Quality, if you can't get your quality down pat, if you somebody's gonna find out. Somebody's gonna find that defect. There's gonna if you if you have the right product and enough people are using it, then you better make sure that your testing is done. And I, I know it's it's sometimes difficult to be totally perfect, but if you don't continually test your product uh, and make sure it's right it's it's the right thing out there, then you're you're a danger for somebody finding something wrong. And then of course, what do you do? Dan, your PR, your communications, your crisis management sometimes, something bad happens, you better jump on it right away. If you don't, it'll make things even worse. Would you, what advice would you give to, uh, to companies like this who are having some trouble in the States? How do you uh, save the brand? Do you send them perhaps replacements for free? Do you take a hit, even if it costs you your year? Well, there, there's no questions. If you, if you want to continue selling in a market, you better clean up your reputation real quick. I don't care if it's the U.S. or Canada or wherever. You better clean up your reputation real quick. However, you also have to do the cost-benefit. What is it going to cost you to fix it? This is not something that's 10 square meters. This is this is a football field. This is, this is a, a, a major investment. And usually, it's a lot of municipalities and governments that are buying it because it's for schools and, and what have you. So if you want to stay in that market, you better keep your reputation, so you better try and fix it. If you choose not to stay in the market and you want to bury it, that's different. If you choose, some people just choose to go into a different product altogether. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with Samsung and their their Note 7. You know, it was catching fire. Uh, I read one report that says they're going to just try and go to the Samsung 8 as fast as they can to put this behind them. Mm-hmm. So yes, recall, but not necessarily repair whatever, but just come out with a, a new product that will hopefully steal the fanfare going forward. Or just add the next sequential number, and then it'll be fine. It's like a new product. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all familiar with that. It's not the 7, it's the 8. Um, uh, and 8 is lucky in China, you know, and I'm just back <laughs> from there. True. So Actually, let's let's pick up on that. How How is Hong Kong? Hong Kong is uh, absolutely amazing, but I'll tell you, even, even Hong Kong is, uh, and I like to call Hong Kong New York City on speed. 
because it's just so fast paced and uh you, you know the you just look at it and you see there's 327 skyscrapers you know or or, or tall buildings versus 115 or 16 in new york as a comparison and things are such at a fast pace it's absolutely unbelievable however it's not all rosy there are still, I mean, you know, I go there year after year. There are places that close, you know, that don't stay open. There are some doors. You have some people and some friends that have had to leave jobs because it didn't work out or the company wasn't doing well. That being said, there is so much opportunity and so many ideas that flow in this little city, this special administrative region of China. It is absolutely amazing to see. And what I'll, I think what I want to get to people out there is that if you don't explore and you don't get out of your own backyard, there's only so many ideas that can be generated. You got to go see what's out there. You got to go get those creative juices flowing. And yes, you can rely on some of your team and some of your management and some of your key people. But if you don't actually leave the nest a little bit and go out there, then I think you'll just be limited in the ideas that you'll come back with. What about doing business in Hong Kong versus mainland China? What do you see as the big uh, differences there? Well, it's it's two very different regions. I mean, first of all, it's uh, I think China's... Uh, amazingly intelligent in the fact that they have communism and capitalism all under the same roof. They have specifically kept it as one country and two systems. So, it, you know, doing business in Hong Kong is super easy. Doing business in China is super difficult. There is no question you see the government's hand in both, but one is very free-flowing, one is very quick uh, to respond, one of things, things are made much easier. Uh, although opening a bank account today in Hong Kong is much more difficult than it used to be. It used to only be uh, a day or two or three, and now it's several weeks and, and, and maybe even longer, some, some cases a couple of months. Although that's not Hong Kong, that's really international regulations. That's really these monetary funds. It's almost, it's almost actually the United States that are imposing such compliance uh, restrictions and compliance requirements of these banks that they're all afraid to open an account because the U.S. can come in and say, you opened up an account for Mr. A that is, you know, working under the table and we don't like it. We're fining you. We're sanctioning you. So they're all scared to death of opening an account to a wrong person. Hmm. Um, back to some entrepreneurial news. Uh, this is an interesting story, how just a really simple piece of technology can revolutionize a business, how some 20-somethings solved a factory problem uh, with an iPad. And essentially, the, the, this was a story uh, about technology about people using technology to its fullest. You have a factory, you have line workers, there is downtime, there's questions, machines go wrong, there's problems, but they don't always take the time to go tell somebody or or they only tell somebody the next day, the next week, the next month. Uh, so these guys are basically have instituted more of the online interaction within the manufacturing system itself. An iPad at every single station, an iPad to log your problems, to log if you found a fix to something. Uh, if there's a little training video, you need to refresh your memory, it's right there in front of you. Uh, and they found it has reduced down, at least in their sphere uh, of their customers, they found it's reduced downtime, I believe it was about six, seven, eight percent which when you're manufacturing, uh, I know if, I know if uh, Julian, when he comes on, if he could uh, improve his productive productivity by 8%, I'm sure he would love it. So like any manufacturing facility, and it's basically, iPads with information right in front of the user to help them do their job better and minimize the downtime.
Last uh, Monday, when Michael Newton was filling in for you, it was a Cyber Monday. And uh, so we're talking about online shopping. Uh, it's obviously exploded, but Canadians are still not completely sold on, on this. It's not. Uh, they, they, you know, you see a lot of articles, you see the, these billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, but there are reports that Canadians still like to go to the stores and buy it themselves. They still like to go and touch and feel and talk and interact and buy it themselves. Doesn't mean they don't do research online. But the actual buying itself of the product, it's not happening, not nearly as much as you would see in other regions and other countries around the world. Hmm. That's what I do. I, I feel like the internet is more of a reference, and I, especially for clothes, I'm not going to buy something blind like that. I'd rather just go into the store and make sure it fits well. Well, then you are Canadian, Dan. <laughs> uh, coming up, uh, we will talk to Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha. And uh, later on, some HR uh, talk with Michel Mayette of FL. And we're going to talk about uh, how to train your managers uh, to uh, make sure that everyone is in, uh, in sync with the corporate culture. As everybody knows, you know, you're working in teams, you're working with a lot of people. Not everybody understands the dynamic and how to work with others. Uh, and a little bit of coaching can go a really long way. But first, so many questions about uh, kombucha. Very interesting drink. Uh, that is on the way. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, Chartered Professional Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 720 on today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL's Josh Miller with you. And our guest this evening is Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha. Julian, welcome to CJD. Hey, welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. So I have, a, I have a couple questions first off the bat. Uh, tell me about the company, Rise Kombucha, and also about the drink, because I've had, it, I had kombucha many times, including yours, and I still don't know exactly what it is. Uh, can you tell me about both the company and the product? So I guess first, the easy question first. So the company, we're Montreal-based, started nine years ago. Um, you know, three original founders and myself came together in the hip and cool mile end uh, um loft, you know, near where Arcade Fire used to practice. And uh, now we've grown steadily over the years. Nine years later, we're about 100 employees, and we have a 20,000 square foot facility in St. Leonard. So we brew um, and distribute rice kombucha in six flavors, two sizes. So the second question, the million dollar question is, what is kombucha? Because you say you brew it, so right away that kind of conjures up some images. Yeah, it's not just a throw a few ingredients in a jar. It's really not unlike a beer. It needs to be brewed and um, it's actually a fermentation between tea and a yeast and bacteria mix that we lovingly call the mother, or SCOBY. It's a symbiotic culture of yeast and bacteria. And the resulting drink is this new, it's not just a nice tea with stuff in it, it's a new tea that's lightly, fer lightly fermented, lightly bubbly, slightly bittersweet, and that is a great vehicle to have many different flavors. So it's kind of a pop drink that has a little bit of a bittersweet taste. Non-alcoholic. Non-alcoholic, although any really fresh drink, any orange juice that sits there, if it's unpasteurized, will have trace amounts of alcohol, like ours, but it, it is a non-alcoholic drink, absolutely. Now, you guys got together, as you say, in this loft uh, near the arcade fire days or plays, and why the beverage industry? Why this? Where did, where did this emanate from? And where? And this is before kombucha really came onto the scene, so how did, how did this idea come about? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, actually, Dan and I were just talking about it. It, it, was, a, it was a double... Sword. We ended up. We started at the same time, Cru d'Essence, which was a vegan restaurant, and it just felt like at the same time, there, this drink kombucha goes very, very well with the raw vegan movement. 
So we had all experienced raw veganism outside of Canada. Uh, I saw it a lot in New York and L.A., and I had my first kombucha out in California. And so we just launched these two things together because, in fact, it was the same customer set, even though they were two very, very different um, companies. So that that's you know why kombucha. It just really felt like the appropriate thing to have, and we really enjoyed kombucha from the U.S. and decided it was time to make a great kombucha in Canada. And it's super interesting that you you, you get into a market where you're not joining a whole bunch of others, but you're really leading it. So when we come back from the break, we'll talk about those first steps about being a real market leader and how you kind of educate and get people to know that it's the right drink for them. We're chatting with Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha this evening on today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha joins us this evening. I will talk HR a little bit later in the program. Uh, but first, Julian, I mean, you, you go everywhere in Montreal. It seems like Rise Kombucha is, is all over the place. Uh, safe to say you're, you're the market leader here in town. How did you carve out that uh, that uh, that business when a lot of people like me just have had no idea what the drink was? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think that we, we really still consider ourselves almost educators first. Um, it was both true of the restaurant and especially of the drink where... I don't know how many times at how many shows and how many places I've had to explain what kombucha is. Kombu quoi? It's, it's, <laughs> so we would drag the bottles around to first and foremost to the healthy stores, the, the, you know, the small and the medium-sized organic stores where there was more openness for this type of thing and, and it started to do well and at the restaurant and then slowly but surely it's really, really, really been word of mouth popularity, you know, you get a star appeal, you get a few athletes that like it, and all of a sudden, it just snowballs from there. So did you actually have a marketing plan going into it, or you basically made your product that was great and handed it to a whole bunch of people? You know, I wish it were this easy for other folks, and honestly, it hasn't been easy, but in that particular regard, we just made a great kombucha and have been effectively doing our best to keep up with demand ever since. We've had no marketing plan. We've never paid for, you know, we occasionally do an ad if we get asked to, but most of the time, it's really... You know, uh, we get sponsorship. People, you know, we, we, we get invited to 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 talk about it, and that's it. I mean, we we are very clear on who we want to reach, and when we rebranded and did all that, we had a clear sense of where we wanted to go with the marketing. But we have not had a traditional sort of go to market. What channels do we need to be in? So, but does that mean you ignore like the social media aspect of it and and any other forms of media, or do you you still do at least a little bit of that? Oh no, we we we've been very careful about how we interact in social media and in the community. It's just the more traditional, like paid advertising, et cetera, we haven't done. But no, with social media, we've always done our best to to have a good team and to, to really to onboard great great ambassadors. But again, unofficial ambassadors. We don't pay anyone to to drink the drink. We get folks coming forth and say we love it. Can we be an athlete that gets some? So, a did you get athletes to to endorse your product? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of our investors is Georges Larac, and he loves it. And he actually, he had a big thing with Pacioretty a couple of years ago where they had a little competition who could, you know, make a worse pronunciation of it. Um, <laughs> we've had, you know, not... You can that. take the whole Habs lineup uh, and figure that yeah, one out. Yeah, we're working on trying to get a, a fridge in the, in the dressing room. So far, you know, it hasn't happened. But, yeah, we have had across the different types of athletes, you know, athletes, performance athletes, uh, dancers, et cetera, that have, have really, you know, helped us. And, you know, a few stars as well. Now, do, do you kind of work on the, certainly, taglines or get people, how do you get them to remember you? Um, I think in our case, we tried to, you know, in a, in a package good, it's, it's all about the, the actual package. So I think that in our case, folks 
even know the drink before they've tried it because it's a very bold packaging that's quite different from a lot of the kombuchas that were out there. So we made a real effort to differentiate ourselves from, but not necessarily distance ourselves. Like we still love the same healthy consumers, but every other kombucha bottle has, you know, peace and love and, and love yourself and a mandala on it. And we just did, decided to make it a clear, bold, very um, grabbing attention. So, you know, it's partly the look and feel. And I guess we have had a couple of interesting taglines. We say perfectly off. Um, which we like a lot, uh, or oddly delicious. Mm -hmm. So really drawing attention to the fact that first time you have a kombucha and a rise, it is a little bit different. You don't really know what to expect, and it's not like anything else out there. So we, we make that part of the intro. It's like, oh, that kombucha stuff, it's true. That it might have little floating bits in it. Well, marketing is only one aspect. I mean, you have to make the drink, and so quality is number one. Uh, certainly manufacturing, that's an aspect. Distribution, I mean, there's so many other areas we'll cover when we come back from the break. Chatting with Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by F.L. Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with F.L.'s Josh Miller. And this evening, we're talking about kombucha with uh, Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha. Um, how did you guys find the product? How did you discover kombucha? I know the history of the drink is a little bit uh, nebulous, uh, but how did you uh, come to, how did you discover the product and how did you discover your, your version of it? How did you come up with the perfect recipe? Well, one of the most interesting things about kombucha culture, you know, pun intended, is that actually in the sort of neo-hippie world where a lot of us were spending time learning about food, you give away pieces of the mother of this culture. So we had all tried kombucha in the States and had tried both commercial brands as well as homebrew. It's a very homebrewable product. And in fact, the story goes that the two founders, David and Matsu, were given a piece of the mother in Hawaii and brought it back on one of their trips and just started making it here. So... Like many things like beer, like wine, it's easy to make, but hard to make well. So we, and I say we, because I was not part of the original brewing team. I was a little bit more one of the business guys behind it. Um, it's just total determination to trial and error, continuing to develop. How and many then, recipes do they go through? Or did you go through? I mean, it's, a it's hard to say in that sense, but it's been an absolute continual evolution. And in fact, at the very beginning, we had three flavors or two flavors, and then the third came along because we sort of merged really early on with a great company that I loved. And his, his brew was called Sacré Jus, which was great. So we brought him in and all of a sudden there was three flavors. And then we added two more a couple years later. And then our last one. So slowly but surely. But even the flavors we have have been an ongoing effort to, as we grow a little bit in size, how do you continue to make them just as well? And the consistency of the flavor. I mean, is every batch exactly the same? Now, because, and certainly where you are today, you mentioned earlier, you were 100 people. At the beginning, you were operating out of a, a loft or small place. So, you know, to make batches that are a certain size versus scaling up must be, must be challenging. So how do you keep that consistency? Yeah, I mean, clearly it's not the same process exactly as it was when we were making it in a five-gallon pail as we are when we're making it in a 10,000-liter um, brewing uh, container. However, we are committed to trying to make it taste as much as, as, as the same as possible. Um, 
even on a good day, given temperature variations and all that, it's an artisanal product that's batch brewed. So we have some differences in, in flavor from time to time. The green tea comes in and it's a little bit different. So that's okay. We actually like the fact there's a little bit different. So it's like, how do you play between making it really replicable? And so the customer likes it, but it's like every batch is a little bit different. So quality assurance, quality control. I mean, that, that also must be a constant. And like you have a, a, a taste tester and a master brewer. I mean, yeah. how, how involved uh, is that is that process? And how constant is it? Yeah, daily? well, we, we have, again, evolved through the years as we've grown in batch size and production to now the point where, we, you know, we, we do have a, a team of brewers and we have a team of quality control uh, technicians that taste not just the finished batch, but actually they taste at different points along the fermentation so that we are we know that the batches are evolving well. Mm-hmm. So in effect, and as we're getting larger and are working with some of the big retailers, we now need to have even more stringent quality control in place. So we're not just testing for taste anymore, but also a lot of other parameters. So that, you know, that helps us, you know, keep control over what we're doing. And every now and then, although I, I hate it when it happens, we have to occasionally toss a batch or at least refine a batch so that it's, if it's not to our quality standards, we won't, we won't put it out there. Now, how did you find the scaling from smaller to large? Was it a, a big learning curve? Was it just a question of going from that five-gallon pail, five pail to the 10,000-liter tank uh, at the snap of a finger? Or is it really there's a whole call it a chemistry process to it. Yeah, you know, a bit of both. I mean, we've stepped up in our batch size probably 10 times in the last eight years. So it's not all the time. So, you know, it's like I was saying, you know, first met, it's like getting your kids that new pair of pants. So at the beginning, the pants are a bit big and then you allow them to grow until they're a little bit short. In our case, we'll, you know, we'll we'll step up into the terms of the size we're doing, which means we have to upgrade a lot of the equipment. And at the beginning, that first time we step up, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that the batch is good. And then you learn... It's not just a scaled recipe. You learn how to make it a bit different at each size. So it's been, you know, a fairly constant learning curve and needing to look all the time at how we're making it so that as we grow, it's as good. If not, I mean, my goal is to make it better as we grow and not the opposite. A lot of companies, you'll be like, well, it was great when they were tiny, but as it got bigger, they just diluted the thing. We want the opposite, that as we grow and have the science team around us, we still bring all the great power of the kombucha brewers we have, but with more of the scientific side to it. Uh, certainly, it's been a, a, a great story of growth. Do you wait until you hit capacity and then decide to grow? Do you have a trend? Do you do you guys have a, a vision that says, you know what, we're we're at seventy five percent? See, great, you know, it's really on the upswing. We better look to increase our capacity now. Yeah, I mean, I guess we've always needed to look ahead, and we have a certain amount of seasonality. So what ends up happening is in the warmer months of May to September, we tend to have been stocked out every year that we've been in production, which means we get to September sweating and say, oh my God, okay, so how on earth are we going to make sure that next May Mm -hmm. we can make more? So in a sense, it's been you max out and then you take the time to to be ready for the next scale up and hope that you have the money to be able to do it and et cetera. And again, we're doing it right now. We're we're getting ready for a next scale up. And the same with distribution. I mean, at first uh, you were on your own trucks and distributing it and, you know, that evolved. Do Do you now have outside distributors? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. We started being entirely self-distributed to maybe get to about 70 or 80 stores in the Montreal area. And then we jumped on our, our first our first distributor jumped on board, who's still with us. And, you know, fast forward seven years, we now work with 12 distributors across Canada from different channels like, um, you know, the healthy retail channel or the conventional channel to some food service channels. And we still have Rise Distribution that takes out to about 800 accounts around Quebec on three trucks daily. And that management of that distribution network is one of the most important things going forward to make sure it's the right group of folks that are in the right stores and we manage and work with them well. 
and of course, there's it's across Canada as well, is it not? Yep, we're we're across Canada in about four thousand points of sale. Still, you know, probably not the majority, but the biggest chunk in Quebec, but Ontario and all the way out to the prairies, some in the some in the Maritimes as well. And we we just sneak a few bottles across the border uh, to Vermont, but just a few. Excellent. Now, and of course, uh, we don't have much time left, but it takes. Uh, you know, you said you're your team of 100 people. It certainly takes a, a good core key group. Um, how do you how do you find your people? Was it difficult to to find your 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 people and your growth? You know, historically in both companies, because of it's a passion project that attracts a certain type of folks, we've generally had a pretty not easy time, but we've had a lot of interest in the company. That being said, through this business and other times in in my past, hiring, motivating, and retaining people is the make or break of any company, especially once you get going like us, where you've got something good going on. So we work really hard at it. And, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, we, we find them through different ways and uh, we work hard to keep them and work well with them. And I imagine it has to do a lot with culture. So I guess my two questions are, how do you keep your culture when you start from five people to 95 people? And second is at what point do you have to go, are you, do you go from informal to more formal processes? Yeah. I mean, hopefully never fully. Um, never for, fully formal. Never fully formal. <laughs> yeah. But I think it is totally true that if you don't start putting in place processes, then things can fall apart. You know, we've had waves where things feel amazing and other times where it feels like we're not paying enough attention to culture. You know, my main MO right now is about how do we scale with integrity, which means that we want to make sure that the, the culture of the business doesn't get surpassed because then it's game over. So, you know, it's not even about so much about and benefits. I mean, folks love to work at a place if they feel like they're part of it. So we just make sure that we're good people. We we do stuff together. We are working on a few explicit culture building projects, but it's really mostly about taking the care and being a good example that that has worked for us and worked for me. Uh, great story, and and certainly as you talk about people and growth and culture, there's no question that management plays a role. And management sometimes you know is great at what they do, but you know, they're, they're not always great or don't have the best understanding of people. And sometimes a little coaching can go a long way. Michelin Mayette, HR consultant at FL, will join us next to talk about that, training your managers. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, Chartered Professional Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. We're chatting with Julian Giacomelli of Rise Kombucha. Plus, uh, we'll have his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur on the way. And now we welcome Micheline Mayette, HR consultant at Fuller Landau, to talk about uh, training your managers. Welcome back, Micheline. Thanks, Dan. And Josh, uh, sometimes even the higher-ups aren't quite familiar with the company culture, and it's important that uh, everyone's on the same page. I think coaching really hits all different levels in the company, but there's no question that as people move up the ladder, and you're great at doing your job, but are you great at you know, talking with people and helping them do their job. And I think it's not always a skill set that is innate. It sometimes needs to be learned. And as you know, we're radio, we can't see Micheline's head nodding, but she's absolutely <laughs> nodding. So we'll turn to you, Micheline, and, and maybe you can you can start and give us a little bit of your recent experience on management, coaching, and, mm-hmm. and what you kind of see out there as challenges for entrepreneurs. For sure. First of all, I mean, the first thing I would say is there's a bit of a misconception as to what coaching is. So a lot of people think it's advising. So, you know, an employee comes to see you, they have a problem and you tell them, you give them really good advice on what to do. And a lot of managers pat themselves on the back and say, I just gave really great coaching to this employee. Coaching kind of brings it to another level. So coaching is really about having trust that the person actually has the solutions already 
but that they need the right person to help them reach their full potential and kind of pull these answers out of them. So it's a lot about self-discovery, uh, discussion. Is it also about the ability or the need to read the person in front of you, understand the body language, the tone? Most of it's about listening. There's definitely more listening than there is talking with coaching, which is hard because a lot of people feel the need to give a lot of advice. And there's some situations that, yes, you need to give the person advice if you have the answer or if you're wearing more of your manager hat. So often I say, what hat are you wearing right now? Are you wearing your manager hat or do you want to try a coaching hat on and see how that suits the situation? And does it, do you find that, you know, cause you, you know, I know you've coached a number of managers over time and from young to old, are there different approaches? Is there such thing as an old fashioned approach versus, you know, what maybe works better today? It's all about really listing and trying to understand the situation, but also not like trying to put yourself in their shoes with their values. Everybody young or old comes to the table with different values and different perceptions of their reality. So it's kind of making them think about their reality, reality a little bit differently. So kind of asking, you know, is this a fact that you're telling me or is it your own perception? And often I'll make them reflect like, is that just the way I'm seeing it? Or is just, is this actually true or not? So kind of helping them rethink, I guess, how they see things. Uh, Julian, I know, you know, with the growth and the number of people in your firm, it, it's certainly not everybody just kind of grows up and says, I can be a manager and, and does it well. Do you find there's, there's coaching required uh, within the four walls of Rise Kombucha? Yeah, I think, you know, in today's day and age, you know, it's not maybe as formal as what we're talking about here, but that I really do try to do my best to do a lot of coaching. And in an informal way, what that really means is, as you say, it's letting people find the way to answer the questions themselves. They know the answers and empowering them through questions rather than telling them the answer. That's really, you know, I, I come from a consulting and smarty pants kind of background where I think I know the answers to just about everything. And at the same time, the most important thing is asking questions to allow the other person to come upon the answer, which they probably have. Which is why and that, that's how they learn the best. And that's how they'll probably adhere to it the most is if they feel they've come up with it themselves. More on HR plus Julian's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. That's next. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Julian Giacomelli from Rise Kombucha has his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur on the way. But first, chatting with Bishin Mayet, HR consultant at FL, about the managers adopting the corporate culture, uh, not the kind that goes into the Rise Kombucha bottle, but uh, the, the organizational culture. Um, what happens when you have a manager who, um, who's just not really willing to learn? I think it's on both sides too. You know, there's a manager that's willing to coach and then there is a team member employee that also has to be willing to want to be coached. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. I mean, if you have, for example, like in some, especially in formal coaching arrangements. So when there's an outside coach, often it's the company's telling a manager, like, you're not doing a good job. I want you to get coaching on this. So the person comes to the table already feeling very reticent about the whole process and not really into it. Um, so it makes it very difficult because the person really has to want to learn something from it. When it's more of an employee comes to their manager, if they're resistant to it, then again, it's asking, does this employee want to be managed? Do they want advice or do they actually want to be coached? So sometimes it's just a question of making the employee aware of what is the difference between the approaches and are they interested in exploring that you know, that solution. And then, of course, follow up. I mean, you want to yeah. make sure that, that people get the objectives, that they follow mm -hmm. through on them. Uh, so how do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, that's the number one benefit of coaching rather than going to a training course, for example, for a day is they leave with nothing really to do. 
every co- every time you meet somebody for coaching, you're supposed to end with actions that they're supposed to take between the next time you meet them. So there's always an action plan at the end. So that's why it produces typically better results than training. Would you equate, can we replace mentoring with coaching? They're very different. So it's not the same type of role. Mentoring is more often somebody a bit more senior or experienced who takes somebody kind of under their wing uh, to whether it's introducing them to clients, contacts, giving them kind of more adv- more of advice in terms of their their everyday work. Excellent. Listen, there's there's no doubt that coaching plays a role in most organizations, but everybody's got to be willing to learn. Yeah, for sure. And as we approach the last uh, moment of our show, we'll uh, as we do each week, we'll turn to our guests and say, Julian, what would be your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur? Well, what I would say, guys, is that it's super important to connect to your passion. You know, we're so, we're out there trying to find the solution to a new problem and be smarter than the next person. But my experience has been, can you bring more of you into the good or service that you're trying to bring into the world? And that'll really make a better chance of success. I think it's great. And I think, uh, Dan, you know, it's 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 a great story. Uh, thank you, Julian, very much. There's certain growth, uh, you know, and there's a lot of parts that we didn't hit. Uh, but I, I would say there's also uh, an interesting factor, you know, we talk about, we talk with entrepreneurs, Dan, and one of the common aspects is is risk and the level of risk that they t- that they take on and entering a market becoming that market leader uh whether it's the world or just a, simply a region uh takes a lot of guts takes a lot of risk uh thankfully there's some partners that come with it so you don't bear the risk alone uh but there there's no question that that entrepreneurial spirit must embody that certain amount of risk of course that is driven by passion no doubt because then you won't necessarily take the the leap of faith that that happens so uh, i say this is a, a great story about entrepreneurial risk and uh, and kudos to julian and rise kombucha especially with a product that a lot of people have never heard of so uh, congrats julian on your success uh, julian giacomelli of rise kombucha thanks for stopping by thanks for having me guys thanks for mission mayette of course uh, hr consultant at fl josh we'll see you next week next uh, monday night at 7 p.m here on news talk radio cjad 800 the night side with john paul is next